0: Well, I was gonna start by saying if any of you have ever been rafting, but I see the Harburg family in the back row. And so I know that some people have been rafting in this room, um, know that we're praying for Susie, obviously. Um, it's sad that she can't climb up those three flights of stairs. Um, so in addition to serious accidents that can happen while rafting, uh, Susie broke her leg over Christmas rafting. Um, You'll know that if you've been on a river on a boat before, that if you don't provide any resistance, in other words, if you don't listen to what your guide says and paddle, your boat is most likely going to go, or not most likely, it will go in the direction that the main stream, the main current is flowing. There's just a kind of path of least resistance on a river, and most everything will find that path unless it's purposefully diverted away from it. Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Matthew about two roads, the wide road and the narrow road. And he, in a sense, picks up on this, this idea that when there is uh, no resistance, that the general direction of human life in the world around us, the world that is in some ways at odds with who God is and, and the way he's made the world, what he's made it for, that if we just kind of live in that world, our lives will flow in this wide road direction which is generally defined by some kind of rampant self-interest, playing it safe or, or keeping people at a distance. And it will go in this direction. Jesus, on the other hand, talks about this narrow way, this narrow road that runs in the opposite direction to this path of least resistance or the main current. He, when he gets a hold of our lives, he actually remakes us. He makes us new people entirely. He's not just about improving who we are, at the beginning, when he he encounters us. He's actually about uh, killing the old self to use kind of vulgar or, or vivid language. He's about killing the old self and making us into something entirely new and entirely different. So that there is this new way of life which will most definitely be in contrast to this mainstream of the world around us, this main current that our lives would typically flow in. And I'd like to call that new life in some ways over the next five weeks, the missional life. That this is what Jesus is calling his followers to. He's calling them to this this kind of life that's oriented in a whole different way, in a whole different direction from what would otherwise be the case. It's not the main current, but Jesus says this is the way that he calls us to follow. And we're going to take a look over the next five weeks through the book of Philippians at what it looks like to, to have a missional life. Now, for those of you who are part of this community, and this is your home church, Church of the Cross, and As you know, we're a church plant. We're getting started still in many ways and seeking to be a witness here in the city. This is what we have said we want to be. We want to be a missional people. We want to be about the work that Jesus is doing in the world through his people today. And so as we take a look at this, it's obviously got a lot of relevance for us. What is it that the missional life really looks like? Both in terms of just outside and and, uh, on, on the outside and actions, but also in terms of the heart. And we'll have a chance to look at both of those things over the next five weeks together but if you're also if you're not a part of this community if you're just visiting and or even if you're just wondering about who Jesus is and what the whole Christian thing is all about I would put to you that the the missional life the the life of following Jesus is the way that life was really meant to be lived so we can we can live our lives in that mainstream way and pursue that mainstream way um, and find that we end up Not probably in a place of great blessing or there is this other way this narrow way that actually connects with the way that you were wired by God who made you and that this way is is directing us to life and to blessing uh, to joy to peace in a world that's pretty mixed up. So I would say that it it has relevance wherever you find yourself um, here tonight. Certainly it has relevance for us as a family, for those who are part of this family in this community. What are our lives to look like? In a sense is the question. What is the missional life to look like? Well, in this passage tonight, Paul's just kind of reporting news. It's, there's not a lot here in terms of his of, of deep theology. We, we were in Philippians last fall and we, we, we hit this, this beautiful stuff in the Christ. But, but here Paul's just kind of reporting a little bit about the news. Um, it's kind of a digression in his main argument in the letter. And he's, he's giving us a glimpse in two cases, he's giving us two examples of what this missional life is to look like. And he does that by putting before us Timothy on the one hand, who definitely got the upper hand when it comes to names. And then you have Epaphroditus. I'm laughing, Courtney. Um, We could call him Epaph for short, and that would make him kind of cool. But um, on the other hand, we have these two pictures of um, of these servants of Christ who are with Paul in his labor. And these two pictures give us some insight. I just want to pull out two key principles from their lives. The first is from Timothy. And if you look in verse 20, you'll see where Paul begins to describe Timothy. He says, For I have no one like him, no one like him, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. The principle that we see very clearly in Timothy's life is this principle of seeking after the interests of Christ above everything else. It's about putting the concerns of others, as Paul says earlier in chapter 2, as more important than our own, taking a look at their interests and not just our interests. We've spent a lot of time here, but this is simply about putting others before us, putting Christ first, which therefore means that others are before me. This is about living a life where there's where there's a complete orientation to the needs and to the lives of the people around us. The word actually used for genuinely concerned is the same word that's used in chapter four, verse six, where Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. So in a sense, what Paul is describing Timothy as here is as somebody who's anxious about the welfare of the Philippians. Now, when you're anxious about something, it's not the kind of thing that you have to sort of work up to think about, is it? It kind of always enters your mind for better or for worse. If some of you out there struggle with anxiety in a negative sense, you can imagine just take the spin in a different direction and think about the fact that, that Timothy is anxious for the welfare of the Philippians. He's thinking about them all the time. They're consuming his mind and his heart. That's his primary concern and interest, anxious for their well-being. So let me just ask, In terms of our own lives and our own consciousness if you will how much of your time throughout the week is spent thinking about the needs of the people around you really if you're just honest about your life and the way you experience the world and the way you experience your your busy life is there a whole lot of time there for you to be anxious about the well-being of others perhaps those who, who um, are suffering in some way right now, uh, maybe in our community, I, I, does, does that concern us on a, on a routine and regular basis? The people who are like Timothy, living a very missional life, seeking after the interests of Christ, it's interesting that phrase, the way Paul uses that, prioritize obedience to Christ over their own interests and their own gain. Obedience to Christ over their own interests and their own gain. Think about this question for just a second. What are you doing in your life right now, just generally, where you don't, what's something that you're doing where you're not deriving a benefit directly from what you're doing? James writes about true Christianity. He says, true and pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Well, back in in the first century, in many ways still today, orphans and widows were on the margins. They were the down and outers of of their day. No access to the power games of the culture around them. If you were to go and to visit an orphan or a widow in the first century, there would be no profit for you. There would be no way in which that action would in some way Um, fold back upon itself and bring you some kind of blessing or advancement in honor in the society in that day this was a kind of pure action of love motivated by an obedience to christ a love for christ that that flows out of us so the people like timothy living a mission life are asking not what's in it for me about what they do day to day but what's in it for for christ which then naturally just goes to this next question, what's in it for for others? What's in it for the people around me? How much does that question uh, get into your mind on a daily basis as you go about life? Or sometimes maybe life is just so full, life is just so busy, life is just so frantic, it's a rat race, that we find it almost impossible to get outside of what's just um, a barrage, a constant barrage upon us of, of activity and things that we have to do to make life work, to put food on the table, whatever it might be. So that's the picture that we get from Timothy, this picture of seeking the interests of Christ above our own. The second principle from this text from um, the longer named Epaphroditus is um, this idea of taking risks, taking risks. Notice just for a second, the first principle seeking the interests of Christ, therefore of others runs in direct a contrast to the main current of human life as we know it in the world today, which is about self interest, taking one's own rights, making, taking care of one's own. A more cynical way to say it would be looking out for number one. In Epaphroditus' case, what does Paul say? Look in chapter 2 here again. He says. Um, I am more eager to send him therefore that you might rejoice in seeing him that I might be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Verse 30, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. Paul's just talked about how he he got very ill on this journey to see Paul, most likely in Rome from Philippi. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Maybe some of us in this room are risk averse, maybe some of us are risk prone. But the idea here is that the missional life as we learn from Epaphroditus, and as we learn from Paul himself most clearly, who's writing this letter most likely from a a Roman prison cell, taking a fairly big risk in his own life, that the missional life is a risky life. It's not about playing it safe. It's not about um, just kind of gently moving through the world, but it's about following Christ's lead wherever it may take us and at whatever it may cost us, whatever it may cost. And it's about doing this not for our own glory or advancement or gain. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm actually pretty willing to take risks when it has a pretty good payoff for me. Um, I'll drive fast if I need to get somewhere quickly. I'll take a risk. The other day, just this week, I was wanting to catch that train on the T, and so I ran very quickly in front of the T before it kind of crossed the road, and I got honked at by the T guy. <laughs> and um, I'll take risks when it's something that I want, uh, want, something that I want pretty badly. And I imagine that you're probably the same way. Even if you're risk averse, if, if there's something that you want badly enough, you're gonna step out and take on some danger maybe, some risks, some willingness to maybe lose something in order to get whatever it is that you want. So just change the goal here and we get a picture of the mission of life. What we see in Epaphroditus is that he's willing to risk his own life. He's willing to risk his own life for the benefit and well-being of Paul, the apostle, to complete the service of the Philippians to their friend in Rome. As Paul says, he nearly died for the work of Christ. It's for Christ, though. It's to make his name great, to make his name exalted and lifted up and not to get what Paul or what, what Epaphroditus wants. You see this throughout the history of the church, too. Lots of examples could be pointed to, but I want to just give you a, a few here. One is from the book of Hebrews, where it talks about the fact that the, 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 um, the people uh, that, that were being written to says, recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with some suffer- sufferings. It says, for you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a, p- a better possession an abiding one. They went and visited the people in prison in that day, which they knew would lead to their own possessions being plundered. They took a risk in following after Jesus. Or this quote from a bishop in the in the church in the third century about the early church. He says, During the great epidemic, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, administering to them in Christ. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. And died in their stead. And then, there's the, the witness of, of the, the missionaries that have gone out and risked so much. We could, we could draw from Hudson Taylor or William Carey or C.T. Studd, or you can just kind of go on and on. One I want to just give you a window into is Mary Slessor. She was a Scottish woman born in 1848. Uh, and at the age of 28, she left her life and family in Scotland. She was from Dundee, Scotland, and moved to what, what is present-day Nigeria to serve Christ and to give her life. She died at the age of 66, um, having given her life there. Warned that Nigeria was a, quote, white man's grave by her friends and her family. Her reply to her questioners was that Nigeria was the post of danger and was therefore the post of honor. Few would volunteer for service there. Hence, she wished to go, for it was there that her master needed her. This is the kind of of risk-taking upon which the church has been built for 2,000 years. In a more um, contemporary example, I think I've shared this with you guys before, maybe about six months ago, but our our Bishop Thad Barnum has written this book called Never Silent, in which he talks about the African church and their influence over um, the church that we're a part of, the Anglican mission, which is underneath Rwandan oversight. He describes his visit to Bishop John Richihana in the Northwest of Rwanda in 1996, 97. Um, right after Bishop John had taken this role of being bishop. And this is Thad in his own voice saying, John, this place is not safe. I said to him, driving out of the northwest toward Kigali, back in the center of the country. Ruchahana answers, I didn't go in for this because it was safe. I knew it was dangerous, but I knew even in danger, in life and in death, God saves. God sends his workers to be able to make a difference in a situation. We have talked about this before, Thad, but you're a Tutsi. It's even worse. You're like a lightning rod. John, did you know, he said slowly, that at the time of my consecration, soldiers, politicians, fellow churchmen, and people who loved me told me they thought I was going to die in less than a month's time. But my conviction was that I needed to make a difference and preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus, which is never Tutsi or Hutu, but is the only remedy to heal a nation racked with division, and pain. Bishop John would certainly classify as one of my heroes of the faith today, taking his own life and his wife and his children with him to Northwestern Rwanda at a time when everybody said that if he went and took this role, that he would be dead within a month and taking a great risk for the sake of the gospel. It's one thing to talk about risks in these sort of um, pretty dramatic ways. You might be sitting there going, well, how does this connect to my life in Boston? In which i don't know that i'm going to face those kinds of trials and dangers and i just want to say that that there's a lot of ways that we can live in safety in boston there's a lot of ways that we can choose not to take risks for the sake of christ that we can choose to let fear define us as his followers and not the 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 missional life that he's called us to that's a question what what is it that you are afraid of what is it that you're perhaps unwilling to put on the table and say, Jesus, this could be yours. Fear of loss, maybe fear of embarrassment or ridicule, fear of a loss of security, fear of of losing your reputation in some way. What are the fears that enter our hearts that hold us back perhaps from making that step as a missionary of Jesus? Sure, maybe these examples from the history of the church don't, don't entirely relate, but I would put to you that they're not all that different from what might be asked of us as people who follow Jesus today. Think about maybe just if you're riding the T one day and somebody uh, is mouthing off and being rude and everybody's just kind of quiet and, and looking away, would you be willing if the Spirit prompts you to, to take that risk to step into that situation as a peacemaker? to speak, to open your mouth, to risk being looked upon as, as kind of weird for even engaging this person at all um, in your life. Think about the possibility of engaging someone in conversation, maybe at your workplace or in your school, just in a, a conversation about something meaningful and the risk that that would be in that friendship or that relationship that you might be asked to take or about inviting neighbors that you live near over for a meal just to spend time with them. These are. Risks in the same way, in obedience to Christ, or giving sacrificially, or maybe it's uh, um, adoption. Maybe that's a risk that we can take, of stepping out, of putting ourselves out there and of embracing the needs of another. Or maybe it's something like where you live and moving into a harder neighborhood, a neighborhood where there are issues and problems, um, where there aren't a lot of people like you. There are a lot of ways in the world today that we can be called by Christ to take risks for his kingdom, to take risks for the glory of his name, for obedience to him. Where is it perhaps that Jesus is asking you in your life to risk? That you're sort of holding back like Epaphroditus to go and to risk your life for the work of Christ. Where might it be? Maybe it's something small. Maybe it's something that you know you're afraid of that he could be calling you to to risk, to step out, to walk with him. Let me just say that these two principles are illustrated most clearly in Jesus' life, in his own incarnation. Think about for just a second, where would we be today if Jesus had sought his own interests? Where would we be today if Jesus had been unwilling to take a risk in obedience to the Father? What Paul's doing by holding up Timothy and Epaphroditus here in this part of the letter is he's saying, look, these two men have the mind of Christ as I was just writing to you about. These two men look like Jesus in their lives. So there's this mainstream current of a, a life that's pretty self-consumed, of a life that's maybe playing it safe, of a life that's keeping people at a distance. And then there's this missional life. There's a wide road. And then there's this narrow road of following Jesus in an other-centered, risky venture in the world today. And you might be saying, well, my life looks a lot more like the mainstream. If I'm really honest, my life looks a lot like uh, the, 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 the person who's just consumed so much with their own stuff that I never really get outside of, of myself. The danger, if, if that is indeed, there's a good part of that, if, if the spirit's bringing conviction in our lives when we hear these kinds of things, but the danger is that then we just kind of move to a behavioral modification um, mode. Well, I'm just going to be more giving. I'm just going to slap some kind of good deeds on top of what I'm already doing and, and trust that, that that's going to make this work. And the reality is, is that, that that doesn't really work for us as followers of Jesus. Let me suggest in closing that this, the context of these things is incredibly important. The context, in twofold here, the context. First of all, it's in Christ. The missional life can only be lived in the life of one whose heart is really alive in Jesus. Timothy and Epaphroditus didn't just kind of muster up some kind of goodness inside of them. They actually met the risen Christ. They met the risen Christ. And in meeting the risen Christ, their lives were literally turned inside out. That hardwiring self-centeredness that we all fall prey to and seem to sometimes go back to was undone. It It was fatally wounded by the love of Jesus in their lives. And this love of Christ then begins to flow in and through them, empowered by the Holy Spirit into a new kind of life, a missional life. Any attempt at the missional life outside of this reality is going to find itself in frustration and bitterness and all around unhappiness and grumpiness. But a life that's lived in the warmth of the love of God in Christ Jesus can become a missional life of seeking after the interests of Christ and of taking great risks of laying down the things that you're unwilling to let go of and saying, Jesus, take these too. That's the first context. The second context is in Christian community. Notice in this text how many words of warm affection there are between Paul and Timothy. He has served as a son with a father. Between Paul and the Philippians, I hope to send him to you, Timothy, that I might be cheered by news of you. Between Paul and Epaphroditus, he is my brother and my fellow worker. And between Epaphroditus and the Philippians, He's been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard that you were ill. There is this warmth of Christian fellowship and affection in which a missional life can take place and only in which a missional life can take place. The reality is, is that when we meet the risen Christ, we're brought back together with one another in a way that's, that's deep. It's much, much, much more beyond just seeing each other on a Sunday. It's family. And in the warmth of these relationships, there is great freedom for us to seek after the interests of others above our own and to take great risks for the gospel in our lives, to to lay everything down. Because we know that there's a community of people, a community of people that's around us and that's coming alongside of us. Um, It's just this, as we are family, we're free to risk. As we are family, as we know each other, we're free to, to, to lay it all down for Jesus. And my hope and prayer for, for this community is that we would learn to live this kind of missional life together. And as we do it together, we'll be much more able to reflect Christ in the world uh, through our riskiness and through our other-centeredness. We're constantly hearing about his love and his life as we come together, and we're constantly being empowered through the witness of each other and the, the spurring one another on to this kind of missional life. So let's pray.